This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. Since President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed it a national holiday in 1863, Thanksgiving has been one of the most beloved days in our nation. We gather with family, feast over wonderful meals, watch the Dallas Cowboys lose, I mean play, and most importantly, pause to give thanks to the giver of all for all of the ways that he has blessed our lives from his generous hand of providence. Work is called off, school is shut down, and even the stores are closed for a few hours. It's a wonderful beginning to the holiday season, yet there's also a noticeable newer tradition that accompanies the modern Thanksgiving celebration. With the strike of the clock at midnight, the calendar page turns from a day centered on being thankful for what we do have to a day fixated on what we do not have. There's even a decided title for this sacred day, complete with its own festivities, Black Friday. Before the turkey has cooled, ambitious shoppers swipe through their phone and make their plans of what store they will line up outside hungry for doorbuster deals complete with phrases like 50% off, one day only, no down payment, no interest for six months. We've all seen video footage of people who I'm sure just hours before we're giving thanks, gathered with their loved ones around a table, who now are pile-driving people who are other people's loved ones as they all cram inside a place trying to get the last big screen television. How is it possible to go from being thankful for all that we have to being obsessed with what we don't have? How's that possible? The answer beats within all of us. Augustine prayed to the Lord, saying, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our culture seems to say, Our hearts are restless, so we search for rest in things. We cannot get enough, so we want and we want We want what we don't have, and sadly, we even want what our neighbors have, leaving us with little sense of contentment. In my early 20s, I came across an old book entitled, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The title alone struck me, spoke to me. I knew immediately how true this phrase was. That contentment was rare in my day and rare in my own heart. And yet it made me ask, why? Why are so few of us, even people who are in Christ, 
still not content. Here's how the author, Jeremiah Burroughs, explains our condition. The reason why you don't find contentment in the things of this world is not because you've not got enough of them. That's not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportional to that of an immortal soul that is capable of God himself. Many men think that when they're not content, it's because they have too little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. That's just as if a man were hungry. And to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind. And then should think the reason why he's not satisfied is because he's not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. Burroughs hits the target. We know that we were made with a hunger only God can satisfy. Yet, we try to fill and feed our hunger in other places all the time. Finding a spouse, landing the job, getting the house, finding a new spouse, Landing a better job, getting a bigger house, and the cycle goes on. We hunger for the next thing while the bread of life is offered to us. We thirst from shallow waters that will never quench our thirst when the water of life is offered to us. So this morning we consider the sin of coveting and the practice of contentment. And I'm just going to be brave enough to ask a room full of people that I dearly love, are you content? The Ten Commandments end where every sin begins, in the heart. In the tenth and final command, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the focus shifts from external instructions to inward motivations. And here we learn that our desires themselves fall under the rule and reign of God. And God instructs that even our motivations and our affections should please Him. Particularly, we're told we're not to covet things that don't belong to us. And so as we examine the rare jewel that this passage presents... We'll look at it under two headings. First, the poverty of coveting. And second, the treasure of contentment. So with that, may I invite you who are able to stand to your feet as we read together from God's holy, perfect, inerrant word, though written long ago, speaks to us today. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first aspect of the command we will explore is the poverty of coveting. Through our study of the Ten Commandments, we've been looking at both their external 
and their internal requirements. If we step back to consider the whole list for a moment, we'll notice that the first nine commands are explicitly outward in nature. Mark 7, beginning in verse 21, reads, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. You hear all the commands we've just studied? And then it continues, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So this final command is not external but internal. It applies to the heart itself. It instructs the very things that we desire. Before we explore what this command forbids, let's look at what it does not. The final command does not prohibit us from having thoughts of nice things or even wanting certain things. The Bible often commends desire when it's found in its proper place. Not as an ultimate desire, but as a desire for something good. Jacob passionately wanted to marry Rachel. He wanted to be married to her. Hannah deeply longed for a child. Ruth strategically planned and prepared to provide for Naomi. Scripture doesn't ask us to turn off our desires. Rather, it teaches us to control them. Neither is the tenth word against material things in and of themselves. Christianity is nothing like Buddhism, which insists that material things are bad. Rather, we believe that God is the creator, maker, sustainer of all things, and that he has pronounced them good. And so the last command is not looking to disallow desires or to prohibit progress or to expel excellence from our lives. No, there's a way to steward those desires in a good and godly way. So what is it to covet then? Coveting is specifically when we desire something that belongs to someone else. Coveting is when we desire something that belongs to someone else. Now that's not simply a restatement of the Eighth Commandment, not to steal. There's something deeper going on in the language. Edmund Clowney expounds, This command does not simply warn the Israelites against stealing the belongings of others. It goes much deeper, requiring that God's people should not even desire what belongs to another. It focuses not on actions, but on attitudes. It speaks not just of what we do, but of what we want to do. Of all of the neighbor-related commandments, it's the only one that cannot be seen by our neighbors. Only God will see if this command has been broken. We covet any time we fix our hearts on anything that is not rightfully ours. It's not simply wanting something we don't have, it's wanting something that someone else has. To stress the importance of this, 
we should note how much ink is used in explaining this command. So just to keep our bearings, we are completing the Ten Commandments today, but it's also the second half of the Ten Commands, or the second table, which all deal with love of neighbor. Uh, Commands six through eight were incredibly brief, only two words each in the Hebrew. By the time you get to the ninth command, it expands a little bit to five words. Yet when we reach the 10th command, the elaboration extends all the way to 15 words, more than the previous four commands combined. It even repeats itself. We've not seen this before in the Ten Commandments. It repeats itself, echoing the imperative, do not covet, twice. It even includes a list of things not to be coveted, Arranged in three pairs of two, house, wife, male and female servant, ox and donkey. Now this itemized list might seem a little bit strange to our ears at first pass. You might say, so as long as I don't desire my neighbor's donkey, I'm good, right? No. No. These items are not an exhaustive or definitive list of things not to covet. They're simply representing what a typical person in this ancient society might covet. Even the word house does include the physical dwelling space of another family, but it also includes everything in the house, including the wife and the children. People in the ancient Near East coveted the success of the family next door, just like you do today trying to keep up with the Joneses, as we say. This is the thought of the coveting heart. You drive home from another long day at the office that you never want to go back to, and you pull into the driveway. You notice the house next door is already decorated for Christmas. It's like a glowing advertisement for a new holiday HGTV show and you think I wish I had that house it's bigger than mine it has a pool when they were pulling out their Mercedes the other day I saw inside the garage and the garage was clean never had a clean garage I like it I like that house And then you're still sitting there in the driveway and you can see through the glow of the neighbor's home the wife walk by the window. And you think to yourself, actually, I like his wife too. I wish my wife were a little more like her in these ways. Or I wish my wife was a little less like she is in those ways. And then you get to thinking about the accomplishments of the neighbor's kids. And you think, I wish my kids were like those kids. I wish they were that athletic or that academic or as driven or so spiritual or just so well-behaved in public. And then once you're inside your house, you pull out that magic glowing device and you open the app LinkedIn and you see your college friends classmates with their wonderful careers and the things that they've accomplished and you think 
they shouldn't have all of those things. We have the same education, the same age in life. They shouldn't have all those things. I should. I've worked just as hard as them. So you flick out of LinkedIn and open up Instagram. And there you see some dear friends at Disney World in front of that dumb castle. (laughs) Wearing those dumb ears. And you think, I deserve those things. I want to wear those dumb ears. I deserve all of it. I deserve a new house and a better career, a more loving family. I want, and God owes me. And in that moment, you have felt the old pull of the enemy. This is not a new tactic. This is an ancient one. The very way it was in the beginning, when it all began to unravel, as Eve saw a tree that Genesis 2 verse 9 says was desirable to the eyes. And her desire extended towards something that she was told wasn't hers, but she couldn't stop her desire. She coveted and she took the forbidden fruit. James chapter 1, verse 14 explains how this works. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death begets death. Sin begets more sin. Eve coveted. Achan Just fast forward a little bit through the history of the Old Testament. Achan coveted when he was struck by the bright treasures of Jericho. So much so he couldn't take his eye off it, nor his hand. He stole what was not his. David, King David, coveted the wife of Uriah when he saw her bathing from the top of his roof. And he took what was not his. That's what coveting is. Thomas Watson said that coveting should be either seen as an insatiable desire of getting the world. It's a frustrating term. I, I'm irritated by that language. I've felt it. An insatiable desire of getting the world, or a condition that signifies an inordinate love of the world. So coveting is any time we see what another person has and we say, that should be mine. Our culture does everything it can to downplay the seriousness of sin. All sin, including that of coveting. There's a British author who writes for the Times. He said, his name is Ferdinand Mount. And he's observed how the Ten Commandments have been rebranded by our culture to make them more marketable, more palatable. Covetousness has been rebranded as retail therapy. Sloth is referred to as just downtime. Lust is just exploring your sexuality. Anger is opening up your feelings. Vanity is looking good because you're worth it. And gluttony 
is the religion of the foodies. Brothers and sisters, as much as our culture wants to soften the seriousness of sin, we cannot do so. It's interesting how a sin, this sin in particular, that that focuses on attaining and gaining things, leaves us with such poverty of soul. When Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? Do you remember his famous response? A little more. A little more. The wealthiest man in our nation at the time, demonstrating a poverty of soul. So today, if you look into the mirror of God's word, even if in the reading of this one seemingly small verse, and you see in that mirror your reflection, the reflection of a heart that has coveted that has desired something that was not yours to a place where you've said, that should be mine. God owes it to me. I just encourage us together to repent of our sin, to turn to Christ. Maybe that's a brand new thought for you. You, or you came with a friend to church today. You had no idea we'd be talking about such a personal subject. Well, it's no accident that you're here. I'm extending an invitation to you even right now. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. He alone can save. He alone. And to each of us who have known the sweet forgiveness that comes through Jesus, even as command by command, we've tried to maneuver and hide from them, and yet we're exposed to say together, Maybe even in this moment, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, that's Christ, and pardon me. Christian, your breaking of the law is not the loudest word over your life. It's the words that Jesus has spoken and living in your place, dying in your place, that rings like a bell of good news this morning. So having looked at the negative side of this passage, let's consider what the positive side tells us. Namely, it points to the treasure of contentment. The opposite condition of coveting is cultivating contentment. The opposite condition of coveting is, co- is cultivating contentment. I've called it a treasure because it's something that we must find. The thing that I've learned about contentment is we must find it and we must hold on to it. We must cultivate it. Contentment is not something that comes natural to the human heart, but something that must, in fact, be learned. Even the Apostle Paul admits this as he writes to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, actually I'll begin reading in verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned 
the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he pins this well-worn verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The contentment that Paul had learned, that Paul had come to enjoy in every circumstance of life was found in Christ. This is what old Burroughs was getting at earlier as he talked about this rare jewel of Christian contentment. Everything we need to be content is given to us in Jesus. We've just got to find it, to learn it, to live in it. If we want to be content people, if we want to be deeply satisfied, it can only be found in Christ. I thought about a few practices that we might put into use from that truth. You can only be content in Christ. That's true. What kind of practices can we put in place where we know the benefit of this, where we know contentment of heart? So some of you are off school all week. Kids are excited about that. That should be a loud yes. And moms, I bet you're excited about that too. Louder yes is expected. And so you'll have some extra time to think about this, to talk about this. And so I want to offer four just brief practices for you to talk about this week with your family. First, the practice of seeking the kingdom. And I'm just going to give you a brief overview. You can discuss more together. Seeking the kingdom. This is where everything begins, with an orientation of heart away from the things of the world and toward the things that are eternal. Namely, the person work of Christ, your soul which will last forever, and the word of God. To seek the kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things, these temporary things, will be added to you. But the most important thing we will never lose, Christ himself. So if you find your heart growing discontent, ask yourself, what am I seeking? Am I seeking the kingdom of God first? Second, the practice of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the cure for many spiritual diseases. The way to combat materialism is by choosing to be thankful for the things we already have. The way to war against our pride is to remember that everything we've been entrusted with in this life has come to us as a gift, as we read during child dedication. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. God has chosen in his divine wisdom to give you everything you've been given. So it protects our hearts from pride. The way to fight idolatry is to rejoice in the giver instead of the gift. For all the gifts, greater is the giver, we just sang. So do you fight envy or jealousy for things that others have? Begin by thanking God for all that you've already been given. Because when we walk in gratitude, our entire perspective transforms. We see the goodness of God in all things. So thanksgiving is the cure for the heart that's always wanting more. The practice of thanksgiving. Third is the practice of generosity. The practice of generosity. 
I don't need to tell you, you've surely experienced it as I have, but seasons in my life where I'm stingy or fearful to try to protect everything that God's given me, my heart also grows small toward other people and the Lord. And so God has given us this wonderful discipline of giving first to him and then to other people in order to unclench our hand from around everything he has given. If you find your contentment has grown small, look at your checkbook. See what you're spending money on. Are you honoring the Lord with the first fruits of what he's given to you? Are you being generous, sacrificial in your giving? Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And fourth, I'll circle in on the practice of loving one another. We said that the first half of the Ten Commandments were a little manual on Christian worship. The second half of the table is a little manual on the Christian life. The first half taught us to love God. The second half teaches us to love our neighbors. The sin of coveting is an injury against your neighbor. It's anti-love against someone else. Wanting what they have for your own purpose and plans. Romans chapter 13 verse 9 says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, all the things we've looked at, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's the four practices for you to discuss further, to seek the kingdom, to practice thanksgiving, to practice generosity, and to practice loving one another. I thought this week about those four words, kingdom-seeking and thanksgiving and generosity and others loving, and then I, I set them next to other words like new car, bigger house, better job, different life. And in the balance of scale, these are such heavier words, such a better way to live. God's way to live. And in that economy, you see how light and fleeting these other things that we so often pursue as the first thing, and they're named for what they truly are. Our discontentment must be satisfied with Christ. Only he will do. The Ten Commandments end where every sin begins, the heart. One of the things I've prayed throughout our study is that these ten words wouldn't just stay on the surface of our lives, but they would sink down into our hearts. Even though these verses are familiar to us, I think we'll agree they've not been easy for any of us. These words are not designed to be safe and sanitary literature that we're meant to just walk away from after reading them feeling better about ourselves with a pat on the back. No, they are meant to unveil our eyes to the glorious holiness of the uncreated God. Uh, they are meant to humble us before his majesty, to see how deep our need really is. Then to lift our gaze to the sufficiency and glory 
and beauty of Christ who has fulfilled the law in our place. And then to live in light of his law, not trying to earn the approval of God, but because we've been given it through Christ to live in a way that brings glory and honor to his name. And for all of that, how we need his grace. Let's ask him for it now. Father, I thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that you've given us your holy word, and how each of these ten commands reflect who you are and put on display the kind of God that has chosen us, that has redeemed us, and that has loved us. So much you sent your one and only Son to live in our place, to die in our place, to keep the law perfectly in our place for people who never could. And for that, we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we do. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.